Happy Sabbath. Well, I kind of like being sick. My voice is like a few octaves lower. I just flew in from Guam after doing a, a revival series there. So whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But praise God. Praise God for travel. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, it's a privilege to be with you here at ASI Southwest Chapter. And special thanks uh, to Sister Pat Humphrey and her team for pulling this together. It's a privilege and honored to be here. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Sabbath and this opportunity that we have to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray for your Holy Spirit to attend us this evening. Hide me behind the cross. Lord, you know that my feet are made of clay, and I pray that through the foolishness of preaching and through this weak vessel that you would use me for your glory to communicate spiritual truths to your people. So bless us, we pray, with your presence. May the Holy Spirit that inspires also be the Spirit that instructs. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to read a quote in regards to John Wesley. And this is a quote that Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, by the way, she raised two spiritual giants, Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, and John Wesley, the reformer. And she says, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is a sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. So John Wesley changed the world. And there's a book I have in my library that's entitled England Before and After Wesley. And the thesis of the book is evident in the title. You have England Before Wesley and England after Wesley. One author says, Wesley wore plain clothes. He preached 40,000 sermons during his lifetime. He traveled 250,000 miles on horseback preaching. He married at the age of 48. He worked with 15 different languages. At the age of 83, he was angry because his doctor wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times a week. At the age of 86, written in his journal are these words, laziness is slowly creeping in. There's an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. What a man. This man was, was driven by a mission, driven for souls for England. And authors indicate that England was revived, prisons were reformed, slavery was abolished, Christian ethics were reestablished into society, and industrial England was emancipated. The book Great Controversy indicates Ellen White, page 264, says, At the close of John Wesley's long life, more than fourscore and a half years spent in itinerant ministry, his avowed adherents numbered more than half a million souls. But the multitude that through his labors have been lifted from ruin and degradation of sin to a higher and purer life, and the number by whom his teachings have attained to a deeper and richer experience will never be known till the whole family of the redeemed shall be gathered into the kingdom of heaven. I'm involved in education, and as I noted earlier, if you want to change the world, You educate the next generation. That's how you do it. That's how the Jesuits did it in the Counter-Reformation. That's how Jesus did it. If you want to change the world, capture the imagination of the next generation. And one of the greatest means of education is parenting. Amen? This mother laid out a vision for her children, and they changed the world. But there's something indicative of John Wesley's life that you see, if you go to England today and you visit his house, there's a special room, and it's his prayer room. One historian indicates that John Wesley would rise up at 4 a.m. every day to seek God for the first four hours of the day. In his later years, John Wesley was known 
was known to spend up to eight hours in prayer. Big impact, radical prayer life. The two always go together. And our theme this weekend is Here Am I, Send Me. But there's something that happened before the apostolic work and the missionary work went to all the world in taking the gospel to the entire world in one generation. The book of Acts begins in a prayer room, a prayer meeting. You recognize that. The book of Acts begins in a prayer meeting. Zero resources, no education, hardly anything, just 120 peasants gathered together in this room, praying and pleading with God for the Holy Spirit, and the rest is history. When you look at it, every revival is linked with a radical prayer life. The greatest revival in history, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Notice that Mark says, a long while before daylight. Scholars believe that this is the first watch between the hours of 3 to 4 a.m., the verse right after this is Jesus is casting out demons. So the, the positioning of this text is unique. Jesus prays very early in the morning. The next verse, he's casting out demons. The two always go together. And Jesus was known to spend sometimes all night in prayer. Radical prayer life. Every spiritual revival can be linked to a radical prayer life. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 509. The man who commanded sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon, is the man who for hours lay prostrate on the earth in prayer in the camp of Gilgal. The men of prayer are the men of power. That's the most radical prayer in Scripture. Can you imagine? Sun, stand still. And it does for 24 hours. And Ellen White indicates that that man who did that, that type of prayer, was the man who spent hours in prayer the night before. The men of prayer are the men of power. The Reformation. Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. If you look at the account, you, you think that this is like some, some internet craze, viral thing that goes on, but, but that wasn't his intent. He's, that was how they posted things back in the day in this obscure town in, in Germany. He posts this piece of paper up there and sparks the Protestant Reformation. Ellen White indicates that the reason that the Reformation sparked from such an innocuous event is this. From the secret place of prayer came the power that shook the world in the Great Reformation. Luther did not fail to devote three hours each day to prayer, and these were taken from that portion of day most favorable to study. There's a quote that indicates that if the Holy Spirit were to be taken away in the book of Acts, everything would stop and everyone would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit were to be taken away from the church right now, everything would keep on going and no one would know the difference. The reality is, I believe that we live in a society today and even a church in which we have become accustomed to mediocre. We become accustomed to average. We become accustomed to just the status quo. And I'm tired of average. Amen? I'm tired of mediocre. I'm tired of just having average baptisms, average souls. And I praise God for every one. But when I read the book of Acts, that's what I want. Can you imagine the city of Dallas being turned upside down with the gospel? North America, Western Europe, Australia, the entire world. That's what we're talking about in the book of Acts. And we're told that the latter reign is going to be greater than the former. But if we're going to have that type of power, it needs to begin with a radical prayer life. And it only takes one. I tell our students, I don't care about numbers. All we need is one John Wesley. 
what Martin Luther, one Ellen White, one J.N. Andrews. That's all we need. It's the power of one, one individual that's willing to stand in the gap and say, Lord, I won't let you go until you bless me. That's where the power comes. It doesn't come from planning, and I'm all for planning. It doesn't come with thousands of dollars in the bank and resources, and I'm all for that. Please don't misunderstand me. But we're engaged in an impossible work. And we serve a God that specializes in impossibilities. Amen? And it's going to take Holy Spirit power to finish this work. E.M. Bound says this, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayer is God's singular condition to move ahead in his son's kingdom. Therefore, the believer who's the most highly skilled in prayer will do the most for God. And the secret of success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray. Ellen White says, By your fervent prayers, you can move the arm that moves the world. Prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks heaven's storehouse. When we were trying to figure out a name for our son, it's quite the task because we recognize he'd be stuck with this for the rest of his life unless he chose to change it. And the firstborn, Lord have mercy. And uh, so for like three days, he remained unnamed. And finally, we, we decided Hudson after the great missionary Hudson Taylor. Let me read to you about Hudson Taylor from one account of an eyewitness that was with him at a prayer meeting. Mr. Taylor opened the meeting by leading out in a hymn. His appearance did not impress me. He was slightly built and spoke in a quiet voice. But when he said, let us pray, and proceeded to lead the meeting in prayer, my ideas underwent a change. I never heard anyone pray like that. There was a simplicity, a tenderness, a boldness, a power that hushed and subdued me and made it clear that God had admitted him to the inner circle of his friendship. Such praying was evident in the outcome of the long tearing in the secret place and was as due from the Lord to hear Mr. Taylor plead for China was to know something of what is meant by the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The meeting lasted from four to six o'clock, but seemed one of the shortest prayer meetings I had ever attended. The only individual I've heard pray like that was C.H. Spurgeon. Radical prayer life. And here's the result. In 1865, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission. The organization would have no guaranteed salary, nor could they solicit funds except from God. People thought that he was crazy. By, the, by 1872, 52 missionaries had joined the China Inland Mission. In 1887, there were 102 missionaries. In 1900, when Hudson Taylor retired, there were 750 missionaries. The mission continued on, and by 1932, the number of missionaries grew to 1,285. From 1865 to 1900, Hudson Taylor had asked God alone for funds and received a total in excess of $4 million. And this is $4,800,000 during his time with the China Inland Missions, and thousands of souls were led to Christ. Revivals are born in prayer. When Wesley prayed, England was revived. When Knox prayed, Scotland was refreshed. When the Sunday school teachers of Tannenbrook prayed, 11,000 young people were added to the church in a year. Whole nights of prayer have always been succeeded by whole days of soul winning. When I was in college, I took a summer off to minister as a Bible worker in South Central Los Angeles. It's going to be 11 weeks, 20 Bible workers. It was shortly after the Rodney King riots. It was 1993. No, it was 1997. Anyways. And there we were, 
And I didn't start college at five. So I found the secret of the fountain of youth. Anyways, so, so there I was in, in South Central, and I had territory in South Central and Watts. And those of you that are old enough, you remember in the 70s, there was the Watts riots. And, and there I was. And, and it, was, it was the craziest thing because we had no mail-outs, no, no, like, no mail-outs at all. It was all, all Bible workers, 20 of us, and we run this mail route. That's what it was. The same territory and became like the mailman. People would see us, and, and they got to know us over the course of 11 weeks, and it was very simple. We'd knock on the door, say, hello, my name is David. I'm working with such and such a ministry, and, and we want to pray with you want to pray with you, and we're taking prayer requests. And it was amazing in the heart of, like, Los Angeles in South Central. And, and to, we, we, had, we had people that would sign up for, for these prayer requests, and we put them all down on this piece of paper. And I'd have, like, a stack of papers like this with all the people and the interests that, that, that I had and all the prayer requests. And we would go back to our rooms and every other night, now this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Every other night, we would pray all night for every single contact and every single prayer request. That's what we did. Over the course of 11 weeks, go to the door, and then, and then we'd pass out Bible studies. We pitched a tent on Florence and Figueroa. And opening night came. There was a thousand people in that tent in L.A. And we're going through these interests. I'm picking these people up. And that summer, that summer, I saw people from the door. I was the first contact. Started giving them Bible studies to the meetings into the waters of baptism. I remember standing by the pool as, as the person that I, my first contact was going into the waters and I was just crying. And I was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Changed me. And, and the single most ingredient from that summer that made the difference was the prayers. Was the prayers. I mean, that's, that, that was it. I mean, there was, there was, it wasn't a fancy thing. It was like we, we were prayed up. And, and look, there were gunshots going on because we were, we were staying in Compton. And I remember it was like July 2nd, and there was, like, there was like these fireworks. I thought there were fireworks going off in the neighborhood. And I was like, why are they celebrating July 4th a few days early? They're like, that's not fireworks, David. That's gunshots. And I was like, oh, okay. And so, but, but you were prayed up. You were prayed up because I knew that if I met my maker... I was ready to go. I was ready to go. There's, there's something about this when it comes to prayer. And as we noted in the seminar, you know, why is prayer so powerful? Because in, in the great controversy, as we noted in our seminar, there's ground rules. There's rules of engagement. And one of the rules of engagement is God needs legal right in the sight of the universe to move above and beyond what he'd normally be able. And prayer gives God authorization to move and, and, and weigh in in situations and events that he normally would not have the ability to do so. And so we talked about this notion of authorization. Primary authorization is where you give God consent. You know, when you go to the doctor, you sign all these papers giving them authorization to treat you. Well, it's similar. When it comes to God and your relationship to him, the most powerful thing you can give God is your will. That's authorization. That's access. That's giving God legal right to intervene in your life. But there's something called secondary authorization. In the, in the story that we noted in our seminar today, in the healing of the paralytic, when Jesus saw their faith in Mark chapter 2, plural, indicating that when Jesus saw the faith of his friends, it gave him the right to move. And when it comes to intercessory prayer, when you pray for somebody else, it's not the same as primary authorization, but it's still powerful. It's secondary authorization. It gives God legal right to move 
in your family member or friend's life, or in this case, Bible studies or individuals that you met on the street, to move above and beyond what he'd normally be able. And so when, when God sees that, he's like, all right, Gabriel, go. Go. And as you see in the book of Jude, when Moses is about to be resurrected by Jesus, Satan is standing there to contend over the body of Moses because this was unprecedented. And Jesus says, the Lord rebuke you. So when you pray for your son or your daughter or that person, that Bible study that you're ministering to, God's like, Gabriel, go. And as he's molding situations and events so that they sense their need, the devil's like, wait, he didn't ask for this. He didn't ask for this. And then the angel Gabriel's like, step out of the way. He didn't ask for this, but his mom just did. We got the papers. So this is the power of prayer. I've often wondered, you know, why pray if God wants to save that person more than I do, if God loves that person more than I do? What's the point? Is it meritorious? It's not. But there's a, there's a precedence in this thing. When you pray, you're giving God the paperwork, the legal right to move in someone else's life above and beyond what he'd normally be able. And Ellen White indicates that when you ask, it increases our desire and our capacity to receive. So prayer also changes us. In Luke chapter 11, verse 9 through 13, we quote this all the time. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. For, who he, for he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For the person asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This, this quote is used for everything. Lord, give me a new car, a new house, a wife, a husband. And I'm not saying that it couldn't apply to that. But at the end of this passage, he's talking specifically about the Holy Spirit. Now, Ellen White indicates that the Holy Spirit brings all other blessings in his train. It's the greatest gift that heaven longs to bestow upon men. Now, there's certain prayers that are yes prayers. Yes for a Ferrari? Probably not yes. Yes for a new car? It might be maybe. But there's certain prayers that are always yes. Forgiveness? Believe it or not, always yes. And it's always immediate. Wisdom and strength to do his work, always yes, quoting Ellen White. The Holy Spirit, always yes. So we need to ask for yes prayers, right? So when you ask for the Holy Spirit, it's always yes. And here's the thing. In this passage, it actually says, keep on asking. That's the original. In other words, it's not ask once. Because we we leak. We leak. We need to continually be asking for the Holy Spirit. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit who keep on asking? Christ Object Lessons, page 145, says this. God does not say, ask once and you shall receive. He bids us ask, unwearingly persist in prayer. The persistent asking brings the petitioner into a more earnest attitude and gives him an increased desire to receive the things for which he asks. Prior to this passage in Luke, there's a parable that Jesus gives of a man that has a guest over, and he doesn't have any bread. Do you remember that story? So he goes to his neighbor, and the neighbor's in bed, and, and he keeps on knocking. Keeps on knocking. And, 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 the, and the neighbor's in bed, and he's like, look, go away. You know, I'm in bed come back another day, but the person just keeps on persisting until the man comes out and gives him the bread. And then he says, so I say to you, ask. So I say to you, knock. 
Now, when I lived in Alaska, it's like a, a place of extremes. Lord, send me to Siberia to teach me a thing or two. And, and, and it's like in July, you're like, I never want to move from this place. And in February, you're like, Lord, what did I do wrong? And so it was like February, like four hours of light. And it was the middle of the night, like 2 a.m. And Anchorage is called Los Anchorage for a reason. They say all the gangs from L.A., came up to Anchorage, and people, I mean, it's, it's crime cities in some places. And so we're up there in a neighborhood that's a little bit seedy, and middle of the night, there comes this, like, tapping. And I'm like, this is surreal, right? There's, there's a tapping that's just going on. And so I, I wake up, wake my wife up, and I, and I tiptoe out to the living room, and there is this form of this big man, like six foot three or something. And he's there, not at the door. He's at the window. And he's tapping on the window. He's like... And I'm like, at that moment, I'm thinking to myself, my wife should have let me get that thing that I wanted to get when I first went to Anchorage. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) My wife's like, I'm not going to let no Korean have a gun. And And so we're... And so, and so this guy starts, keeps on knocking, and I'm just like, I just hope he goes away, right? But he would not go away. Just kept on persisting and persisting, and, and we're just like, what do we do? And finally, we're like, who could this be? And then it clicked. It was a friend. A former friend. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we forgot that he had left his vehicle there, and we had his key. What was my point? Oh, yeah, knocking. Oh, yeah, knocking. I'm still on Guam time. All right, knocking. So, so here's the thing. Here's the analogy that Jesus uses. When we ask for the Holy Spirit, it's that type of persistence. It's that type of I won't let you go until you bless me. And, and Ellen White indicates that when we do that, there's an increased desire to receive the things for which he asks. It's not like God's up there with a little clicker saying, oh, I think the brother's asked 500 times, now I'll give it to him. It's not meritorious. But there's something about that persistence that changes us, that perseverance. The promised blessing of the Holy Spirit claimed by faith brings all other blessings in its train. It is giving according to the riches of the grace of Christ and is ready to supply every soul according to the capacity to receive. Ask for it. The other thing is be willing to sacrifice. Pray sacrificially. Ian Bounds says this, There was a time when we gave whole nights to chambering and wantonness, to dancing and the world's reverie. And we did not tire then. We were chiding the sun that rose so soon and wishing that the hours would lad a while that we might delight in wilder merriment and perhaps deeper sin. Oh, why do we weary in heavenly employments? Why do we grow weary when asked to watch with our Lord? When I was in the world, I would pull on all-nighters, engaged in foolishness. All night. And then suddenly you become a Christian. And someone's like, hey, you want to talk to God for a long time? Oh, no, that's legalism. Sometimes I think that our notion of righteousness by faith is a big excuse for spiritual laziness. It's as though we think that just because I don't get credit for it, I shouldn't do it. I mean, how many of you want to be married to someone that, you know, if I go to my wife one day and I'm like, hey, honey, can I wash the dish? You know, and my wife comes to me and is like, hey, honey, we wash the dishes? And I'm like, is this a divorce issue? She's like, are you crazy? Like, of course not. Then I'm like, well, then I don't want to do it. She's like, honey, I'm really tired. Can you do the laundry? And I'm like, ah, is this a divorce issue? And then she's like, no. And I'm like, well, then I don't want to do it. 
How long is that marriage going to last? Well, we treat God worse than that. We're like, is this a salvational issue? Well, then I don't want to do it. God has feelings too. And in a relationship, you do things not just for the credit. You do things because you love the person. And if you love God, you're going to want to talk to him. And prayer is talking to God as to a friend. If Jesus were to walk in this room right now, what would be your reaction? I remember I opened the door of a bathroom, public restroom one time, and I saw a famous person. And it was the strangest thing, because I knew him, or I thought I did. The problem was, he didn't know me. And so it was like awkward. It was like, oh, and I didn't even say hi. I was just like, ooh, and I just went around him. And later on, I was like, you'll never guess who I saw at the public restroom. Is it going to be like that when we see Jesus? Hi. Oh, this is awkward. This is weird. I was in a ministerial meeting a number of years ago, and I was single at the time. And there was this guy, he was like, let me tell you how I got married. And I said, well, I'm all years because I'm really hoping to get married someday. And so he said, I met my wife online, Adventist Connect or something like that. I said, okay. And he said, she was over in Asia, and I was in the States, and we were talking like every day. And he said, I proposed to her without ever having met. I said, you did what? He said, yeah, man, I proposed to her. He said, but it gets better. We had the wedding date set, and I flew over there. The cake was bought, the dresses and everything. And I met her when I got off the airport, and we went off and got married. I said, brother, that's crazy. And by the way, young people, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is not marriage advice. I'm just telling you what happened. And I said, brother, what were you going to do when you got off that plane and you look at this woman that's about to be your wife, and you say, oh, Lord, what have I done? And he said, David, it's the strangest thing. We spent so much time talking together that when I got off that plane, it was seamless. Our relationship picked up right where we left off. And that's the way it ought to be with Jesus. Amen? You talk to him through prayer. Look, God talks to us through this. We talk to him in prayer. Talk to him every day. That's how Enoch walked with God. So that when he comes at the second coming, it's not awkward. You're not calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on you to hide us from your face. It's like, I know you. Amen? I have a relationship with you. And you pick up right where you left off. That's what prayer is about. It's not a meritorious thing where we're earning our salvation. It's talking with, with a person that we love every single day. I was pastoring at East Lansing at the University Church. It was 2008. And it was in Michigan. Remember 2008? Bottom fell out of the economy. Bailouts, auto industry tanking, housing market crashing, and I just arrive in this church, and we have an emergency board meeting because the church budget fell off a cliff, and we were slashing our budget because our members were hurting financially. The Michigan economy was in tatters, and we thought, we thought it was over. So I'm there in church, I just arrived, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm afraid this is going to close on my watch. In addition to that, we have all this theological division happening and just craziness going on. And I arrive on this scene. We're located right across the street from Michigan State University, which has 40,000 students, and, and the economy's imploding. So I'm like, what do I do? I'm at a prayer meeting, and it's about a 200-member church at the time. And the prayer meeting is like, I guess you can say your quintessential Adventist prayer meeting, which is really a Bible study. There's like six people there. Sound familiar? So we're all huddled there. 
the sixth prayer meeting faithful, and they're like, Pastor, this isn't a prayer meeting. This is a Bible study, and with all due respect, we should pray. They're like, we should pray sacrificially. And I'm like, you want to pray sacrificially? They said, yes, Pastor. I said, you sure you want to pray sacrificially? They said, absolutely. I said, well, I'll tell you what. This next Sunday, I'll be here, 4 a.m. I'll see you there. You should have seen their eyes. They were like. Later, I found out this husband and wife couple, one of them that came to a prayer meeting, uh, they said, that man is crazy. <laughs> so why don't you stop him? The spouse was like, why don't you spot, stop him? And so like that, that, that Sunday, you know, if, if I'm going to be there at four, I have to get up at least at three, right? And as a pastor, Saturday nights are like, is like sometimes long. And so I got up at three and I thought I'd have a prayer meeting by myself in that church. And then I'd seen him at the Wednesday prayer meeting. I'd be like, where were you? Yeah? And, uh, and so I go there. At 3.55, open up the church sanctuary, turn on all the lights and go in there, settle down, about to have my prayer meeting. I'm thinking by myself, and suddenly I hear the door latch. And in comes this train of about six people, hair disheveled, you know what I'm talking about, bloodshot eyes. They're like, and walking in, so forth. I'm like, wow, praise God, you're here. They're like, yeah, pastor. And so I said, well, let's pray. And so we start praying for the Holy Spirit. We start praying for revival. And for six months, we kept it at 4 a.m. For the next seven years, um, when we moved it to seven, <laughs> logistics and whatever, but we moved it to seven. But for the next seven years in that church, there was a group of anywhere from six to 20 people that would gather together for two hours to praise, to pray, and to pray specifically for revival. That's what we did. And I'm telling you, I saw miracles in that church. One of the miracles was our, our young adult population got on fire for God. And the reason you know they're on fire is they start sharing their faith. And we had one individual by the name of Carlo Dorve. Sometimes you'll see him at GYC. He's a trumpet player. He's got one arm. He, uh, we sent him off to Emmanuel Institute to get training. He was a, a student in the music program at Michigan State University. And he, he had this business card that said, Free Bible Studies. Answers to life's most difficult questions. And so every time he'd go out, he'd be armed with those cards. He was at a bus stop. And he saw this, this Chinese student. We have 3,000 international students coming to MSU every year. I mean, I tell him, look, the mission field comes to us. So, so he's there at the bus stop. He sees this Chinese student who's holding this Catholic catechism because she's curious. And so he's like, look, you want to study the Bible? She's like, yeah. He's like, here's my card. She emails him back. She starts Bible studies. We give her a key to our church so he can, she can study there in the evening. She starts studying in our church. Uh, one day when I was eating potluck, I mentioned this in our seminar, uh, I'm eating potluck, and my associate pastor comes to me and says, David, we need to go. And I could tell by the look in his eyes that we need to go. So, so I go over there to his office, and I see Lou Yang sitting there, and I see a tear coming down her, her, the side of her cheek, and I'm like, she's She's convicted. So I sit down and I said, Lou, do you sense the Holy Spirit calling you? She said, yes. She said, do you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to make a decision? She said, yes. I said, do you want to kneel down right now and give your heart to Jesus Christ? She said, yes. We knelt down in that office. And the communist, the atheist became a Christian. Amen? Two weeks later, we were baptizing her into the Seventh-day Adventist church. But Carla wasn't done. Kept passing out those cards. Another young lady, she was in this rock band as a guitarist, frizzy hair and the whole thing. Long story short, she starts taking Bible studies. She gets baptized. She's a pastor's wife now in the Michigan Conference. But he wasn't done. He starts sharing his faith even more. 
There's a young man by the name of Anthony. He's a rising star in the music department. Full scholarship to MSU, $30,000 a year annually. He's a saxophonist, and when you hear him play, this brother is good. He's the son of a Baptist preacher. So Carlos goes to him and is like, look, brother, you want to take Bible studies? And Anthony says in his testimony, he says, I was going to teach this brother a thing or two. And so Carlos gives him a, a study on Daniel 2. And Anthony's like, Carlo, you're a Bible scholar. And Carlo's like, you ain't heard nothing yet. And so this brother starts coming, coming to church. We're having reaping meetings. He's hearing about the Sabbath. This brother's convicted. He's convicted, but he has a problem. He's a son of a Baptist preacher. And so he calls his dad on the phone, and he's fearing that his dad will disown him. And so he calls his dad and he says, Dad, I've been taking Bible studies. I'm convicted on the Sabbath. He's like, Dad, I want to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. And his dad tells him, Son, there's nothing more that I want you to do than follow your convictions. Anthony gets baptized. He's sitting at MSU working in the cafeteria. And he gets convicted. He comes to my office. He says, Pastor, we need to meet right away. He sits in my office. He says, like, look, I can't do jazz anymore. Now, no, we hadn't talked to him about music or anything like that. He says, look, I can't be a jazz musician. I, I, I can't do this. And he says, Pastor, if I, if I drop out of this program, I lose everything. I have to move out of the dorm." I don't, I don't get cafeteria meals. It's like I lose everything. His parents think he's crazy. And I'm thinking that I'm sitting there and I'm like, I feel responsible. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, oh, well, I'll pray for you. You, 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 know, you go wherever the Lord leads you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, follow your convictions. And so I'm sitting there and, and that man goes over a few days later after praying and drops out of the jazz program. And I'm thinking to myself, like, now what do we do? So I galvanized the church. I said, we need to support this man. They sponsor him to Emmanuel Institute. He comes back. We hire him as a Bible worker. He goes to Southern Adventist University, and now he's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. All glory goes to God. And the Lord puts his money where his mouth is. Suddenly, our church budget turns around. In addition to that, we hire locally funded, not conference funded, a full-time associate pastor, locally funded, a full-time Bible worker, locally funded, a full-time web pastor. I mean, who has a web pastor? I mean, so suddenly our staff, all locally funded, and after that, every year, we're ending our, our church budget twenty to $40,000 in the surplus, in the surplus. And look, it's not me. No glory goes to me. I don't even know what I'm doing. I just know where to get the bread. Amen? I just know where to get the bread. When you pray and plead with God for souls, you're in alignment with his vision for your life. Because there's only two priorities, ultimately, that God has for your life. Saving you and saving others through you. Everything else pales into insignificance. That's the heavenly priority. And when you align yourself with that, everything else, God says, look, I'm opening the windows of heaven. There's a pastor in the Michigan conference, they gave a testimony at one ministerial meeting. And he stood up and he said, look, I have a testimony I need to give. He said, my wife, who's a prayer warrior, was praying to God and saying, Lord, show me your heart. I want to see the heart of God. Lord, please reveal your heart to me. And as she was praying, she fell asleep. She had a dream, and in the dream, she, she was inside the city, 
of the New Jerusalem. Looking out through the transparent gold walls after the millennium. And she looked on the horizon and she could see a shadow that was approaching her that covered the entire landscape. And, and as this shadow approached very quickly toward the city, she recognized this wasn't a shadow. These were people. And, and, and as they got closer, she could start to make distinctions out of the faces and the individuals that were there. It was a sea of humanity that was coming toward the city. And she's scanning the horizon, and suddenly she looks out, and she sees a face that breaks her heart. It was her, her son. And in the dream, she sees her son, and her son sees her. I mean, can you imagine the emotion of that? She's inside. He's outside. They come up to the walls of the New Jerusalem. And she's just weeping. And, and she looks at her son through the walls. And, her mo- and, and, and a mother's heart. And, and, and she says that her son is mouthing something. And she could make out what he's saying. And she's like, she, she can distinguish what he's saying. And he's saying, Mom, let me in. Mom, let me in. And she turned to try to let her son in and recognized she couldn't. And she heard a voice saying, now is the time. And she woke up. And she felt the Holy Spirit speaking to her heart saying, now you know my heart. Now you know my heart. HMS Richard Sr. was given an interview after he retired, and he was asked, like, if you were to do everything again, what would you change? And he says one of his greatest regrets was that he wasn't able to spend more time with his family, traveling with the voice of prophecy. His son, during his, his teenage years, went on a rebellious streak, clubbing, carousing parties. He was headed out one night for a night of revelry and drunkenness, and he's going out, reached for the doorknob to open the door to go out, and he heard a voice in the other room. So that's strange, this time of night. I mean, who could be up? So he was curious, so he tiptoed over to the door and put his ear on the door. He heard a voice, and it was his father. And his father was praying. And his father was saying, Lord, I want my son back. Save my son. I want my son back. Please, Lord, save my son. I broke his son's heart. He turned around and went back inside. Later on, he'd become the director speaker of the Voice of Prophecy. I know all of us have people in our lives, if they were to die today, the likelihood is that from our human perspective, perhaps they would be lost. And so tonight... I want to make an appeal. I want to make an appeal. If there's something in our lives that is keeping us from Jesus, and we're not in an optimum relationship with him, the Bible says that sins have separated us from God. And it, it, it guts the power of our prayers if we're not right with him. We need to ask God to change the world and let it begin with me. And so, in your heart of hearts tonight, if there's something that is keeping you from an optimum relationship with God, something's between you and him, and you want to say, Lord, I surrender. You want to say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. I can't even give you my heart. Give me the desire to desire. And you want to say, Lord, 
I want to put it on the altar tonight. I want to invite you to come forward for a special prayer. We don't know what tomorrow may bring, but today is the opportunity. God bless you, my brother. God bless you, brother. God bless you, brother. You want to say, Lord, I want to lay it on the altar today. I'm tired of playing games. There's something that's keeping me from an optimum relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want to be set free from this thing in my life. Revival begins with me. And I want to say, Lord, I surrender. Give me the desire to desire, and you want to lay it on the altar, and you want to say, Lord, give me the gift of repentance. Repentance is sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. And you want to say, Lord, I don't even feel sorry. I love this thing. Help me to hate it. And you want to say tonight, Lord, I surrender. Coming forward is a physical act that indicates a spiritual decision. And right now, today, you want to say, Lord, I'm giving you authorization, legal right in the sight of the universe for your intervention in my life. God bless you. The Bible tells us that when we make these decisions, heaven rejoices. Amen. Can we kneel for prayer? Let's kneel together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and for your love, your mercies which are new every morning. And Lord, we're tired of playing games. We're tired of mediocre. We're tired of average. And tonight, I pray for every single person that's come forward. Lord, we can't even surrender without you. Lord, we give you our will. We give you the right to act in our lives. Whatever it is, the something that's between us and you, we pray that you would remove it. Lord, revive us. Change the world and let it begin with me. Let it begin with us. We're tired of 99% surrender, 89% surrender. Lord, we want to be 100% committed to you, like in the book of Acts, where we lay it all on the table. Total surrender. Before we can go for you, we have to come to you. We want to do that tonight. Make that surrender. Take our hearts, because we can't give it. Save us from ourselves, our weak unchrist-like selves. Help us to be willing, to be made willing by your grace. Lord, revive us. Help us to believe, not because of the way that we may or may not feel. Help us to believe by faith that you are a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. So I pray for every person that's here tonight. May you seal every decision with your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.